Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week, I'm sharing a Webby-winning podcast with you that has been a source of comfort and clear information for millions over the past two years. It's called In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt, and it's an all-time favorite of the Chasing Life team. Andy is a former White House advisor, but you can think of him as a little Fred Rogers mixed with a little Walter Cronkite. In his podcast, Andy offers discussions with experts on COVID, climate change, mental health, and more. In the episode you're about to hear, Andy chats with Jason Kander. Jason was a Democratic frontrunner about to announce his presidential campaign when in 2018, he walked away from politics. He realized his time serving in Afghanistan resulted in PTSD, and he needed to put his mental health first. In a sensitive and really honest interview, Jason opens up about the traumas he and all of us face in different ways and how to grow past them. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt from Lemonada Media is available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to In the Bubble. It's Andy Slavitt and it's Wednesday, July 6th. Hope everyone has had a good holiday or is in the midst of a good holiday week. Hopefully you're getting some time off of work. Kids are off of school. Kids, grandkids, whatever you got going, I hope you're getting a chance to spend time with the people you love. I got someone on the podcast that I really have a lot of affection for myself. I don't know if I would have said love, but I thought maybe it was going to sound a little creepy, but he, there's a lot to love about Jason Kander. Let me just review a little bit about Jason for you in a moment, but uh, also remind you there's a lot still happening with COVID. I think we spent some time, if you had, want to go back and play, talking about some of the really good things that are happening, maybe reductions in long COVID, availability of vaccines for kids, and the hope that we have taken a big bite out of kind of the, the death rate and severity of COVID. We are going to you know, we are facing a new variant, BA4, BA5. It's taking a foothold in the country. And look, every time there's a new variant, we've got to ask the same questions. Is it more or less severe? Is it more or less contagious? What happens with our existing immunity? We don't know the answer to those questions yet. And so I, I would still encourage everybody to be cautious, hang out outdoors. Um, you can still get COVID. And, you know, as BA4 and BA5 come, we're just going to learn more about it. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Jason Jason's someone I've known for a little while. I like him. I consider him a friend. That's irrelevant to this conversation. What's relevant to this conversation is here's a person, you kind of put yourself in this situation, who served in Afghanistan, came back, and everything was going well for Everything. He started to run for office. He drew big crowds. He became nationally known. And the guy in his 30s. Everybody seemed to like the guy. Couldn't hear a bad word about him. President Obama, no less of a person, said, this is the guy that's uh, the next kind of person to be president of the United States. It's a pretty heady thing. So he joined lots of success, as you'll hear, and then something happened. Now, what usually happens is, what? A scandal, right? Someone does something stupid, wrong, et cetera, ends their career. And if they have a personal problem, you know, we tend to find they cheat their way through it or they drink their way through it or they bury it. And, you know, we get these very imperfect creatures who end up showing up in office and sometimes they hoist that dysfunction on the rest of us. The story of Jason Cantor is different. Uh, and as we're going to get into in a very deep and intimate way, Jason started experiencing what he recognized to be symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And he denied them. 
to himself for a long time. And he was, he was riding so high and he couldn't imagine why he was feeling low. And so he made this decision and what it teaches us about being true to ourselves and understanding our own foibles and the external world versus the internal world and what he ultimately did is one of the best and most inspiring stories you're going to hear. He has written about it in a book. So if you like the podcast episode, which you will, his book's called Invisible Storm. It's a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Very brave, great guy, honest, vulnerable conversation. And we're also getting a little bit into Afghanistan and what the remnants of that withdrawal are that's been that happened a year ago jason had an interpreter and a relationship with that interpreter that uh, is really i'm gonna ask him to explain it to you because it's a different kind of relationship when you're in a place like afghanistan um, than almost any other kind of relationship you can imagine and a lot of these folks interpreters like his were left behind in afghanistan he's been spending a lot of energy and attention on that and i just think we can't forget we can't turn away from our eyes from that problem. So that's part of what we're going to get into. I'm really excited to share this with you. Andy, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me. I'm good, man. How are you? How have you been? I've been pretty good. You're off to a good summer? Uh, yes. You know, I mean, playing baseball and coaching my son and um, just... I don't like cold weather, man. I mean, so I, it's I I want it to just be hot and you know where are you right now? So it's funny. Last time we talked, you were on our show two years ago. We we were living in Minnesota. Yeah. Now we're in Southern California. Right. So we are back. Oh wow! Okay, great life choice. Let me just say, nothing oh, yeah. against Minnesota, but uh, and it helped it helped my marriage a great deal because we were here. We were living in California when I dragged her to Minnesota, and then of course huh. I dragged her there. And then, of course, I got dragged to Washington, and so now we probably we're back home, and so we're happy. Our, you know, we become we become empty nesters. Our our kids are both a little bit older than you. Our kids are twenty four and twenty, so we're back and really enjoying enjoying being back. And you were doing a show with your son yeah. for a bit. It wasn't this? This, 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 this started show. out as yeah. This show was Zach's idea, and then Zach abandoned me to go to college. Where Where is he? He's at Penn. Oh, wow. He's a pet. That's great. And then I was out, in fact, I was out, Jason, I was out seeing him, and I saw one of his friends, and his friend said, Zach has forbidden any of us from ever listening to the show, <laughs> to In the funny. Bubble. And I was like, what, what is that all about? And he said, oh, I, Dad, I don't, I, I don't like listening to my own voice. Uh-huh. It drives me crazy. So anyway, he could, have had, he could have had a career as a co-host to this August podcast, and instead he chose college. Yeah, I mean, he could have had a career as an August co-host in Southern California. There you go. Well, all right. Well, hey, thank you again. Yeah, for, uh, no, thanks for, for being on again. Uh, I'm very excited about the book. And the book is sort of, um, I'm glad you put down into words the power of what you've been through and some of the things you were saying. I mean, it's tell, just for the audience sake, you were on the show about two years ago, and uh, we were talking about PTSD and... I don't know if you remember this, um, Jason, but about a week later, I got an email from somebody who said that when they listened to the episode, they had been about to take their own life. Hmm, No, I didn't know that. It was a a veteran. Hmm. In fact, he said he was suffering from PTSD and about to take his own life. He saw the title of the episode and listened, and you changed his life. And oh, he's still wow. alive today. And in fact, I think you, he, he, you, you probably don't remember this at this point, but you guys even exchanged notes and he sent me a note saying it was so powerful to him that you responded to him. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. I'm fortunate enough to get a fair amount of input like that. Probably a lot of but, those. And I don't, I don't always uh, do a good job of tying it back to the, its original source. You know, yeah, that is, um, you know, there are things about being a public person who is also very public about a mental health uh, challenge that are, you know, not the most fun, right? I mean, like, like I, I write in the book about, about how right after I uh, initially made my announcement, there'd be times when I'm just going about my day and not actually feeling too bad. And, and I would be like at the grocery store, like picking out avocados or something in the produce aisle. And because I'm well known, 
people would see me and sometimes, and this is a very sweet thing, but it was sometimes very creepy and awkward. They would feel this compulsion to like convince me not to kill myself. Um, and it turns out when you say publicly that you had had suicidal thoughts, that <laughs> happens. So people would like come up and lean in and whisper to me something very nice, but a little strange, like, you know, the world is a better place cause you're in it. Like, no, like, hi, my name is. And, um, and that, you know, that is a, uh, a good thing about the world, but it was a little awkward and, and weird for me. But the other side to that is, um, that makes it truly very worth it is, partially just knowing that you can have an impact by talking about it. But really, man, I wish everybody who went through treatment for trauma or for any mental health challenge got the affirmation that my wife and I have the opportunity to get on a regular basis because of our public profile of people reaching out and saying that kind of thing. It, it it's I can't even begin to tell you how motivating and, and validating it is to hear that stuff. Man, you've had you've had a profound multiplicative impact on so many people's lives and their families. I'll even tell you, Jason, in a very small way, you changed the way I looked at some things in my own life and improved my own life because you said something on the on the show which was so simple and uh, so impactful, which was that oftentimes people don't give themselves permission to rate their trauma is serious enough to cause PTSD. And you you were talking about yourself and you said there are people who had been through uh, far more significant battles than you had. And so you felt like um, you didn't know if you had the right to do that. And what you told me was your brain doesn't think in a comparative basis. Mm -hmm. Your brain only knows the trauma it responded to. And I never would have thought to use that, that expression, but I had an accident at one point in my life that it turned out was having consequences uh, of various kinds on me and my own um, ability to cope. And I had not looked at that because um, it just wouldn't have occurred to me that in my very privileged life, there's something that could have been considered traumatic that happened to me. And it once I acknowledged that, Jason, it actually allowed me to get some therapy and change some things. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, yeah, that's, for me, one of the biggest things I had to learn is is that, is that you can't rank your trauma out of existence. And in fact, what, I, what I've learned over the last few years is that um, denying your own trauma doesn't actually push it away. It only delays your opportunity to heal, is, is actually yes. all it does to yourself. And, and I run into this, well, myself still, like it's a natural inclination, right? Like I actually had a therapy appointment this morning um, with my therapist at the VA, not for my initial trauma of my deployment, but actually because in August of last year, I got very involved in getting initially my translator's family out of Afghanistan. And then that became a few other uh, people who, you know, that were close to people I served with. And then over time, I'm you know, very gratified that we started this little group that has ended up getting out more people uh, than Schindler got out. Um, but Oof. all along the way, I was telling myself, I'm not in Afghanistan. So the fact that, yes, these pictures of these children are living in my phone. Yes, I was you know speaking with people who were at the gate. The Marines were looking for my people when the bomb went off that killed all those. I was telling me, myself... Well, I wasn't deployed. I wasn't there. Mm. And uh, my wife and my therapist at the VA, who I had not seen in a bit, uh, convinced me like, no, let's let's just, you know, I had done an initial look at it as a trauma, but then I had kind of said, okay, I'm done with that. And, you know, I'm on like a little short 10-week weekly regimen of just like, let's unpack this. Let's deal with this. And the thing is, is, you know, that's so different than 14 years ago when I was like, oh, this isn't real trauma compared to my friend who got shot, my friend who, and so I waited all that time and it made it so much worse. And it's it's analogous to these conversations I have on a daily basis with people who will come up to me and they'll tell me about an accident, about losing a loved one, about something like that. And then they will sort of shrink from it and say, but you know, I wasn't in the military or I wasn't in a war. And I always stop them and I say, that it doesn't matter. Like that that does you no good because your brain doesn't know about that. Your brain didn't experience what I experienced. It doesn't even care. 
Well, I, I, want, I do want to come back and ask you about the important work you're doing in Afghanistan. It's one of two or three topics that I, I want to get to. But um, maybe first, I just want to make sure that for the benefit of people who are relating in some way to this conversation about some trauma that occurred in their life. They may not know what the warning signs are. They may not even understand what's happening. They, they may not attach this label to it. Can, can you take us back to your understanding as of today of how you experienced your initial trauma and how that ended up affecting you later and what it felt like, what those warning signals were to you that it, that maybe at first you ignored, but now you know are the things that are really important to watch for? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it was very confusing because I really liked my job over there. Um, it was hard and it was sometimes very frightening. But uh, when you are in a combat zone, um, everything is brought to bear. You are fully utilized. And you know, I was uh, an intelligence officer tasked with um, doing anti-corruption, anti-espionage investigations, uh, mostly of people within the Afghan government, Afghan military. What, what year was this about? I was there uh, October 06 uh, to February 07. Okay. And um, the, the way I actually like to explain it now is um, my commanding officer at the time uh, later told me that his expression for what me and, and a couple of other guys in our camp were doing uh, was thugant, which is to say there's all these different definitions. There's these uh, uh, you know, divisions of intelligence that are always, they have an int uh, in their abbreviation. So like SIGINT is signals intelligence. They like listen to people, you know, mm. and, and then HUMINT is human intelligence. They go interview people. And there's no such thing as thugant, but that's like how he thought of it, which, and he defined it as the, he was like, you built relationships with thugs in order to get information about other thugs in Afghanistan. So that was my job. I went out uh, with a translator, sometimes just me and the translator, sometimes me and a couple other guys and a translator, and sat with people who may or may not um, want to kill me. Uh, you know, may <clears throat> their allegiances, you couldn't really know. They generally um, were more heavily armed than me, and, and I was always outnumbered, uh, pretty much. And uh, nobody knew where we were. Uh, you know, we didn't have any backup coming or anything like that. And to me, that was exhilarating, scary, but exhilarating, felt important. And oftentimes, frankly, I mean, look, I was um, 25 years old and I felt like a cowboy. I mean, I'm in a combat zone. I'm oftentimes not wearing a uniform. I got a, sometimes a pistol tucked into my waistband. Like I felt like a cowboy. Mm. And there were lots of parts that I didn't like, but there were a lot of parts that just like, I was enjoying, mm -hmm. frankly. And so it was very hard. That made it hard for me to understand the idea that I was in any way undergoing any trauma, not to mention the fact that I didn't fire my weapon and I didn't get blown up. And I had friends who that sort of thing did happen to. So when I came home... What's your understanding of the trauma that you actually were experiencing that you didn't recognize? Well, it's pretty... It, I'll tell you, it, it, it should have been, not should have been, it could have been evident to me had I known more. Uh, I try to be careful now about not... Yeah. saying what I should, because, you know, that's worthless. It doesn't help me. Um, mm -hmm. But but had I known what I know now, I could have noticed things like um, I was very uncomfortable uh, <clears throat> getting on the road, being in a car and stopping. To this day, I am not as much as I used to be because I've worked on it a lot, but I was always aware of where every exit was in any room I was in. And I did not like to have my back to it. And if I did, I was very uncomfortable. Um, I didn't like crowds. I didn't, you know, that kind of thing. Like I didn't like crowds where I wasn't in command of the crowd. Right. I wasn't comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so it, I also, I came home with like a really severe, like muscle spasm twitch in my eye, which was the beginning thing. And then that all developed into uh, really bad night terrors, nightmares that were mostly about the thing that I was on edge about all the time in Afghanistan, which was being kidnapped. Um, and, and then over time that evolved into uh, no longer taking place in Afghanistan, but instead taking place here. And the people that I couldn't protect were my family, my kids. Uh, and I told myself this fiction that, well, I'm no longer in Afghanistan in these dreams. I'm no longer even in the army in these dreams. They're not about Afghanistan. Um, and the way I dealt with this uh, is that I would 
I threw myself into my work and I, I had this sense that it turns out is pretty common for trauma survivors, which was this need for redemption. And for me, I communicated that to myself and to others as I had what, what do you mean by redemption? Well, I felt I hadn't done enough. You know, I had served a four month deployment. Mm-hmm. I, there were people there who were there when I got there and were still there when I left. And there were people who I had been through training with who were wounded people who, you know, uh, like I, there were people who had given so much more than me. And so a lot, a lot of what I did in politics was because my parents raised me right and they raised me to serve and to care. But also a lot of the pace at which and the vigor at which I threw myself into it was about a need to feel as though I was going to find this redemption by achieving some transcendent thing that in reality was a mirage. Uh, and, uh, and and so to make this answer even longer, part of what you asked is what did it feel like on a day-to-day basis? I was thinking about this yesterday, how to describe this. Um, on a day-to-day basis, it's like if there was this threat right behind your shoulders, right behind your neck, where you can't, you can see it only peripherally when you turn your head, but you know it's there and you feel it all the time, but you can't quite get a hold of it. Uh, and then combined with sometimes just feeling like your shirt is too tight. That's like the the idle nature of it to me. And then there are all the symptoms as well that I had. Can you recount for everybody what led up to you making the decision that you were going to very publicly not only talk about this and deal with this, but really change the course of what would have appeared to be this this trajectory that was almost too good to be true? Yeah. Um, let me take you like a few months prior to my announcement that I was going to step back from everything. Um, so the first time that I really decide like was willing to admit to myself not that i had ptsd yet but that there was something genuinely wrong with me was uh it happened in new hampshire and and at that point um i had been on the road for a year i'd given big speeches in 46 states um and it was all building to this moment i had i had met with president obama i had done all the things and and I was like, this was the the moment where I was going to give the big speech uh, in New Hampshire to a huge crowd live on, you know, Road to the White House on C-SPAN where my parents were watching at home. And everybody in the room knew this was the moment where Jason Kander's going to give a speech where he's not going to say I'm running for president, but where everybody's going to watch this speech and decide whether they're okay with the fact that he clearly plans to run for president, right? And, um, and it was a very big moment in my life. And up until then, I had become aware, at least somewhat, that I was basically going from one endorphin-filled performing moment mm-hmm. to the other. And in between, it was just gray, sullen haze, like time with my family, all that, that none of that mattered. My addiction was, was that. That's what made me feel alive and, and made me feel redeemable. And so this was it. Like, here I was, like, this was the moment. Like, I was keynoting this event where the year before me, I think it had been um, Elizabeth Warren, and the year after me, it was going to be Joe Biden. Two years before me, it was, like, Hillary Clinton. I mean, this was the moment. And I crushed it. Like, I murdered it, and I knew I had, and I felt amazing all night. And the next morning, I get up, and I I go to the airport in Manchester, and the TSA guy sees my ID and says, oh, it's the next president of the United States. And I'm still feeling high. And then I get to my seat on the plane, and I felt as empty as as ever. And and they usually lasted longer than that, those endorphin highs. How did you know that when you came down from that, sitting on the plane, that this was something that needed to be addressed versus uh, kind of part of a continued pattern. I had been feeling this way for so long and I had become so emotionally numb, which was not a term I had available to me at the time, but it is now. And that emotional numbness was a result of, you know, you, you alluded to this a minute ago, like when people turn to substance or they turn to all these things, I turned to, um, public attention to accolades, to adulation, that kind of thing that was, and to career. Like I, if I was building a career and building something that I thought was going to make a difference, 
then I, I was avoiding myself and I didn't have to be alone with myself. I couldn't be alone with myself. I, you would not find me sitting alone with my thoughts, right? Um, but I, I'd come to this pattern where it was like, I just got to keep these, these events, these highs close enough together that I can just, I'm good, you know, as long as I keep, and, and it had all been building to this. And I knew that if, it, if this level of high was only going to last like 12 hours, then I'm running out of options. Right. I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm, I was scared. I was scared by it. Mm. And, and so I, I voiced, I'd already spoken with my wife about it. She's the only person I'd ever talked to about it, but I voiced this feeling of depression and complete exhaustion, um, to Abe, my campaign manager. And he had thrown out there, uh, the idea of, well, you know, you, you could get off airplanes and just stay home in Kansas city and run for mayor. And it was like somebody just threw me a life preserver because I just said, yes, I should do that. Mm. And, and in my mind, uh, what I was doing was I was going to go home. I was going to become mayor of my hometown that I love. I'm, I'm, my kids are sixth generation Kansas Cityans. I was going to become mayor of my hometown and I was going to make a difference for my neighbors, like a difference I could see. And that, and that would be the way that I would fill up this hole inside me. And it should have been so much fun, Andy. Like I, you know, most campaigns you're, you're, you're desperate to get name recognition, right? I had a hundred percent face recognition. Like I would knock on doors and people would bring out my book for my first book for people me, uh, to, for me to sign. Right. People drive down the street and yell, I'm voting for you. I mean, we, we were ahead in every poll. We sold $25,000 worth of t-shirts on the first day, you know? So it should have been great. And it was all going great professionally, but over the course of that campaign, which lasted 99 days for me, Things would happen in the campaign that should have been great, and I couldn't feel a thing. And this gets back to the emotional numbness. Were you just were you numb, or were you or were you also getting sad and depressed and scared? I was numb, and the the depression was getting worse, and it had been getting worse for a long time, but now it was getting worse much faster. And and now I I was spending most of this campaign uh, either really angry or just really just numb or uh, thinking about ending my life because I felt like a tremendous burden to my wife and to my son and to my family. Was that the first time you felt suicidal? I had had trickles and, and flickers of this over time, but it was, it was getting louder. It was, it was, it was ideation, you know, in my mind. I didn't know that term then. Mm -hmm. Um, and so <clears throat> finally, uh, one night I had sort of this, like just glimmer of an idea that maybe I should try something else, you know? And so um, I got up from the couch, sitting there with my wife, and I went in the other room, and I called the Veterans Crisis Line. And I thought, because again, I had this imposter syndrome, this sense that it was, un, uh, that it was stolen valor, the idea of me claiming the mantle of PTSD. I was real sheepish about it. And I, I, was, I thought they might tell me, um, look, this is an important line. We've got to keep this open. Don't, you know, this wasn't your service. <laughs> right. like, you, need to, you need to not call this number or... You know, I was embarrassed about it. And um, one of the very first questions the woman on the other end of the line asked was, have you had suicidal thoughts? And the only person I'd ever admitted that out loud to was Diana, my wife. But I, I said yes. And like, it was just a spigot. Like, tears came out of me. And the most important thing that happened was the way she re responded to me. She asked me about my service, that kind of thing. And her entire tone of voice was that of somebody who was talking to someone who didn't sound any different than anybody they'd talked to that shift or ever in that job. And that clicked for me. And I realized I'm not any different than any of these other people. And, and, and then I, I went into the other room and I got off the phone we talked about how I was going to need to go to the VA. And I went in the other room and I Googled, <laughs> I Googled PTSD, which I had done many times before, but every time I had ever done it in the past, mm -hmm. I had done it to, to read it, in a way where I could tell myself that that's not me. That's not what you got. And, right. And, and tell myself some fiction. And this was the first time that I read it with an open mind and doing it that way, having just had that experience, it was like somebody had just written a paragraph about me. And I, I, I cried really hard and my wife held me. And I remember saying a couple of things. One was, it, you know, it's been 11 years and the whole time I had no idea that I got hurt over there. And then the other thing I said that was a really big deal for me was I said out loud to my wife, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I was done. And I knew I was done. It's an extraordinary moment uh, in a very moving 
story, and I encourage people to not just hear this, but read about it. As I listen to you, what's, what's really interesting is how the very thing that you think you want, the adulation, the attention, uh, the success, um, in some form was becoming a trap for you, and you had to get out of it. I think the thing that I found very encouraging was just, if you seek treatment, how treatable this is. Mm-hmm. And how, how, did you, how did you experience that? What is wild to me about that is that I actually didn't come to the realization that PTSD treatment is supposed to work until a few months into therapy when it was working. And what I mean by that is when I made the decision, like, like you know, a couple of days after calling the crisis line, I, I, I made my announcement that I was going to go to the VA and everything, which was a whirlwind, right? Because I had just hit the self-destruct button on this thing I'd been building for my entire adult life. And the only thing that was going well in my life and traded it in for a complete unknown because I had no idea whether I could get better. I had no idea whether it, I was past the point of no return because I didn't know. I didn't know how it worked. And, um, and so I, I threw myself into treatment. And a few months in, I was, I was starting to feel a lot better. I, I was doing the homework. I dedicated myself to it. And then I started to really struggle with these feelings of, well, why did I get better when it seems like nobody else ever does? Because when you think about it, where are the public portrayals, fiction or nonfiction, of people achieving post-traumatic growth? They're non-existent, right? Now, we are inundated with what I refer to as PTSD porn, which is, you know, portrayals, sometimes grippingly accurate of people within the throes of PTSD, but always, you know, so upsetting, like a guy or gal who they're, they're beating their spouse, they're abusing drugs, they're robbing a bank. Sometimes they're doing all three in one scene. Right. Um, and, and the amount of times that you see somebody who's been through treatment for PTSD and they're doing well and they're managing it and they're going on with their life, it's just, it doesn't happen. And so that was the frame of reference I had. So when I said to my therapist, like, did I never have PTSD? Because, uh, how am I feeling so much better after a few months and all these other people have not been able to make it through it? And he said, look, I'm, I need to show you something. And he pulled up all these studies done by the VA. And what they showed was the vast majority of people who entered treatment and committed to the program and did their homework, the vast majority got better to the point at which the symptoms no longer disrupted their lives and they no longer on a daily basis you know, qualified as people who like were struggling with PTSD. And I had no clue about that. But that's when it became clear to me that what I needed to do next for me, not for the world, like not like this is what I need to do the way I was before I got treatment, but like what I wanted to do next was I wanted to achieve that post-traumatic growth and then be able to model that because I figured if somebody had done that on the public scene, you know, so many years earlier, I wouldn't have waited over a decade. I wouldn't have let my situation got so bad. Oh, that's interesting. So the interviews I've done, this book is my way of, frankly, just writing the book that doesn't exist until now and that I needed to read 14 years ago. And if I had, I think I would have done things different. Letting the world see you healthy, even with setbacks, mm-hmm. uh, but healthy uh, in this new language this post-traumatic language, I think about all the trauma that's, we, that gets inflicted in this society every day. It's hard for us not to have the conversation about the, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas that happened a couple months ago and all, and all the shootings that have happened before and since. Uh, I, I'm, I'm haunted by this one little girl in Uvalde who talked about, who's, who survived, who... Um, wiped her friend's blood all over her in order to survive. And now she says she can't go to sleep at night because they're going to come and get her. She's a dear eight-year-old little girl. And I, I used to think about 21 victims, 20 victims. And, and, and I think, no, that's not right. There's hundreds of victims. There, every kid in that school, hell, hell, all these kids not in that school who are, going to other schools around the country who, who saw that they're parents of all these little kids who send their kids to school every day. Like, isn't, aren't they experiencing some sort of trauma as well, Jason? Yes. And, and I would widen the circle greater than that. I would widen it to you and me. I would widen it to, to parents who feel responsible 
because we're part of a society that hasn't that hasn't protected these kids. I, I can tell you that every mass shooting, particularly when it's when it involves children, I find it you know deeply triggering. Like I I it's very and, and I don't know if that's tied to my individual trauma or you know, because I, in my mind, I'm a soldier who protects people, or if it's just, you know, I'm a dad, it, whatever it is, um, I think it goes back to this sense that, uh, of two things. One, feeling hesitant to in any way uh, own that as, that is traumatic for me, as well as for them, right? And and then when you don't do that, you avoid it and you never allow yourself to deal with it, Right. But then the other part to it is for people who, let's say, let's say they just are, they live in that town or they live in Texas, they live anywhere in America and in some way have the most proximate connection to that, right? Like, and that's the sad thing about these shootings being so prevalent is we all have some proximate connection to mm-hmm. it. You know, I, there was a, uh, a mass shooting in, in the Denver area um, at the end of last year where it, one of the, one of the victims was uh, a woman who was best friends with one of my very close friends and who I had had dinner with once. And six months before that, there was a mass shooting in a grocery store out there where a friend of mine from Kansas City who had just moved there happened to be in the grocery store at the time and was unharmed. Now, my brain wants to tell me those that I wasn't affected by that. I don't have anything to deal with about that. And no, I have no right to deal with anything about that. But that's not true. And as a result, you know, if I listen to that, then I don't deal with it. And I don't talk to anybody out loud about it. And I don't say, this is upsetting me. And when I don't do that, I don't deal with the feelings. And then they come to me in my unconscious. They come to me at times when I don't realize they're happening. So I've learned in therapy that I have to process those. And then for the people who were involved, for my very close friend who lost their best friend, who feels like, well, my friend Jason was in a war. That's his trauma. What right do I have? I wasn't even there when my friend was shot. They then get to a point where when they realize this might be PTSD uh, that I should deal with, if we go back a minute ago to where we were with all of the portrayals of PTSD or people in the throes of it, they're all PTSD porn, they're never post-traumatic growth, that leads Americans and people worldwide to a really dangerous false belief, which is that PTSD is a terminal diagnosis from a career perspective and possibly from a life perspective. Mm. And we are constantly having this conversation, for instance, about veterans of, well, let's get it across to them that what it requires is strength, not weakness, to go get help. And that's great. We've gotten that across. Veterans and other yeah. people, I think, get that. But what we have to get across is if you get diagnosed with PTSD, that is the beginning of you getting better. That is not the end of your career, and it's not the end of your life. My suicidal ideation was a symptom of my depression, and my depression was a symptom of my PTSD, largely the fact that I didn't get a good night's sleep for 11 years. So, you know, if, if I had instead dealt with the PTSD, then we're getting nowhere near a terminal diagnosis from a career or a life perspective. You know, and I think my 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 version of your events of your life, which I'm sure you should care nothing about, but I'll give it to you anyway. I do care. <laughs> is half the circle was written, the circle drawn of somebody in the public eye who was on the top of the world, admired, masculine, tough. Um, but so what? But so what? The so what turned out to happen later mm-hmm. when the person with those characteristics could admit that he had to deal with problems, that he had to deal with feelings, that people who are often macho, top of the world, military culture, aren't very good at always dealing with or aren't perceived to be good at dealing with. And as a result, they, you know, we turn to other things. And look, uh, we're all influenced by these cultures. We can pretend we're not, but we all want to be admired. We all want to be liked. We all want to be... Um, ratified to some extent and there was just no way to feel ratified by saying there's something wrong with me and so i feel like you climbed that mountain I, 
for a purpose you might not have known at the time. Yeah, it was not on my radar, but uh, <laughs> at all. But I, I agree with you. I, I, that is how I feel, and I appreciate it. I, um, you know, I think that the typical narrative in America for people who, like, when there are folks who everybody says that person experienced trauma, the narrative that we're all interested in, and then therefore the narrative that we tend to write for ourselves and try to uh, try to pursue, is one of redemptive heroism, because we've been taught that when you go through something, and I mean. When, as I say this, there's going to be countless movies that are going to come to your mind because it's so self-explanatory. But we've been taught that when you go through something, the way you get out of it is you achieve some great feat to redeem it, right? And I'll give you a really recent example, which is uh, not long ago, I saw uh, Top Gun 2. I saw Top Gun Maverick. We just had an episode last month about Top Gun Maverick. We had Jay Ellis on the show. Perfect. I, I So I'm far be it for me to criticize the movie, okay? I loved it. I took my kid. It was great. Went with my dad and my brother. But to me, the Top Gun movies are a perfect example of this myth that we tell ourselves of redemptive heroism. Because what are those movies about? They're about a guy who went through a horrible thing. It happened in training, but he lost, and I hope I'm not spoiling the first movie for everybody, (laughs) but he lost his best friend. Okay, And And he lost his best friend in a way that he felt partially responsible for, whether he was or he wasn't, right? And what happens in the next scene? The next scene, Tom Skerritt, his CEO, walks in and says, you got to get past it, right? You got to get past it. And what's the rest of that movie about? It's about him getting past it, going out, doing a great heroic thing, saving other people, and then he's fine. The movie ends, he's fine. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into the second movie, but it doesn't divert from that, right? Yeah. So for people like me, who I can tell you, I was, after Afghanistan, I was a platoon trainer for officer candidate school, which is to say, you know, I... I was a guy who yelled and screamed and then mentored and prepared uh, people to lead troops in combat. And one of the first things they would do when they came in, because we just wanted to see if they could write a paragraph, is we would make them write a little short paper, why'd you join the army? And I always found it hilarious how many of these soldiers said they joined the army because they saw Top Gun. And I would constantly just give them trouble. Like, uh, you know, it was just another thing I could kind of bug them for. I could, you know, they'd be at attention. I'd be like, you know, you joined the wrong branch. Like how how dumb are you? (laughs) But it was illuminating to me that, you know, now I look back and I see that consciousness of American veterans, for instance, is so informed. Our idea of what a man is, is so informed by films like that from the 80s and 90s and probably decades before and since that just show you that if that if you just do something to make up for it, you'll be okay. Mm. And that's not how it works. I know because I am an expert <laughs> in finding ways to do something that makes up for it. And actually, the only way out is through. You got to go live in your unpleasant stuff. And you got to live in it long enough and tell the story long enough to your therapist and meditate on it and listen to it in your headphones over and over and over again until, like in my case, the day you walk into your therapist's office and you say, I'm tired of this story. Can we do another? It's boring to me. And he laughs and gets excited and says, Awesome. Boredom is the goal. If the story bores you, instead of making you break out in a sweat, then it no longer controls you, you control it. And that's how it actually works. So before Top Gun Maverick, we should have had Top Gun analyze this. That's right. Well, he deals with his stuff. And then we could, and then he could have gone and been Maverick again. Because let me tell you, Maverick is going to be a five times better combat leader if Maverick has dealt with what's going on with him and the, and the feelings he has about his responsibility and Goose's death. If he's done that, that's going to inform the way he leads his people. Wow. Let's talk about Afghanistan. I want to start by just, just talk about your interpreter and the relationship you built with your interpreter and, and the, the people over in Afghanistan. I mean, help us understand how, and, and I think it's just a precursor for helping us understand how, you experienced the events of the last year when the exit began. Yeah. And all that happened. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of the way I handled Afghanistan in the book is, it, it relates to this, is that, um, you know, I, I know that not everybody is going to want to read like a soldier's memoir straight up just about soldiering, right? So there's a chapter where I just kind of give you a day. I'm like, here's one day I remember really well. And it just, I'm just pulling it out. And, you know, it's not a particularly special day, but just to give you a feel of what it was like over there, right? But one of the things that I focus on in that is my relationship with 
with a couple of different translators, right? Because what I what I'm glad for people to learn about is that these people are not just they're not just like they're not machines. They're not just standing there taking language and turning it over to the other side. These people are partners when you're over there, right? My translator Salam was a partner and a cultural guide. When I'm in a meeting with people and it's tense and I don't know what their intentions are and he may not, it's incredibly important that every word, I mean, you, you know, we've been in politics. We know how important every word in a high stakes meeting can be. Now pass it through the, the, the texture of language translation, right? right? And everybody's armed right. and tense. So to have somebody who can steer you away from cultural mistakes and to, to guide you in a way that helps you get to your objectives, that person, that's beyond any buddy cop movie, okay? That's your partner. And whether they're translators or just the other great people that we worked with over there, over the course of 20 years, we as a country, and by extension or through us as soldiers, we made promises to these people. And that promise was, you stood with us and we're going to stand with you. And it is not a platitude to them. It is meaningful. And, you know, we all, any of us who have been in and out of government or even in any corporate structure, you know, you get these things like you go through a little two-day training and they give you a certificate that says you did this or your boss writes a little note, hey, you did a great job with this. We get these and we take them for granted and maybe they're locked away somewhere, but probably they don't even make it home from a deployment or from a work trip or whatever, right? The Afghans who we worked with I can tell you from doing this for the last 10 months, they understood that there was a high probability that one day they were going to need to prove to somebody what they did. And they didn't lose one of those things. They saved every photocopy of every ID written in English that allowed them to get onto any base. They saved every little commendation certificate that was printed out in mass and signed by an auto pen by a, by a colonel. They saved all of it because they knew that one day they were going to need us to get them out of there or they were going to get killed. And so it is a horrific experience to have those people send those things to you so that they can live in your phone and in your computer because they know that if they are caught with them by the Taliban that has taken over their town, that they'll be shot in the head. They have to burn those materials and they have to trust you to hold on to them on the other side of the ocean. And then they have to trust you to help navigate the process to either get them into the airport or later for us because we weren't able to do that get them into a town up north where we could get a plane in and sneak them out. That's a lot. And so when you feel, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about a minute ago, this, even if you're not directly involved in it, that feeling of the society you're a part of letting down something so important, you know, yes, we've gotten a lot of people out, but there's a lot more people who need to get out. And there are people in third party countries right now who are in limbo, who deserve to be here, including my translator's family. And that's a very hard thing to carry around. And there's people should just know that there are a lot of American veterans and, and veterans of the diplomatic corps and just a lot of volunteers who are carrying that around. But put the, put the Americans aside for a minute. Over the next few years, people are going to increasingly, I hope, in large number, meet Afghan refugees. And they're, at first, you know, eventually they're going to, I think, these are industrious people and they're going to be in auspicious positions. But at first... They're going to give you your coffee at Starbucks and they're going to sit quietly in the front seat in your Uber or your Lyft. And, and it's really important to me that everybody understands that every person you meet like that is a, is a hero. Uh, <laughs> so the work that I've been doing for the last 10 months is just trying to help those people get to where they need to be. You were just completely dependent on them. They took an enormous risk to help you and by by extension all of us and they're now in a position where as you describe it the rug's been really yanked out from under them help us keep focused on the scope of the challenge till today how how, how many people are we talking about what's the the size of this what should people be doing i mean i could feel one one of the coping mechanisms many people listen to the show have is just give me something to do. Yeah, give me a no. small thing to do. Absolutely help help people understand what how to keep the the microscope here and help people understand what could be done. Uh, there's a few things. I appreciate that question. Um, <clears throat> there are tens of thousands, if not more, uh, Afghan allies who absolutely should uh, be assisted to get out of that country because 
um, they've earned it through their service with us and because they're in danger, whether they worked with NGOs or women's rights groups or they were they were judges, uh, female judges, for instance, who put away people who were Taliban and now are back in charge and all the other like more conventional stuff that you hear about the people who work directly with us. They're still there. And we we need to we need to ramp up our processing uh, and our attention to it so that we can we can move them through the system and not make it so difficult. And then we can work to get them out. That's one. And and that is something the administration can do and is to some degree working on, and I think could do better, but is working on. Uh, two, um, for those who have come here or who are on their way here in the next few months and are currently at, you know, uh, like what we call lily pads, like third party locations around the world awaiting processing, we need to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, which is something that we did for Vietnamese refugees, but we didn't do it until the 90s. We, we absolutely cannot do that again. We cannot wait that long. We need to give these people a smooth and quick process to be a part of our, our communities because they've earned it and to be able to begin to succeed here and, and to work here. Um, and we can, support, we can support these refugee resettlement agencies all over the place. Uh, there's one that I'm working with a lot in St. Louis and, and also in Kansas City. Um, that is just doing incredible work. And we have to recognize that, um, look, my wife is a Ukrainian immigrant. She came here as a refugee from Ukraine in 1989. I, I'm in no way trying to denigrate the importance of the role that Ukrainian refugees are playing right now and how horrific that is at all. But I do want to make sure that people don't lose focus on Afghanistan because there is a difference. Um, while, while Europe is going to, and rightfully so, deal a, great, deal a lot with Ukrainian refugees, the difference here in terms of why we should continue to keep our focus, we can keep it on both, but why we can't lose our focus in Afghanistan is we did not go to Ukraine and spend 20 years asking people to sacrifice their lives for us and promise them that if they did, we would have their back. Yeah. And, and there are so many people like me all across the country who said those words and right. just want to keep that promise. We, we've asked so much of these people, and I have this very vivid image that there are people who are over there watching your back, you, Jason, and we owe them, let alone the point you make, which is the right one, which is all of our stories, all of us here in America, with very, very few exceptions, um, there was some situation where somebody took mercy on us, led us into their communities, got us on a ship, got us through the country, helped us assimilate. And these are a very, very special group of people, and I so appreciate you calling our attention to them. I want to finish not the way that probably 95% of your interviews are, are going to finish, which is, well, Jason, are you going to get back in the political arena and run for president? Because I think I know enough to know that you're going to do what's right for you, but but I but I do want to ask a question that leans in that direction a little bit because selfishly for the country, you're a, a part of a group of people that I actually ended up having to meet around the same time period. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was another. Beto O'Rourke was another. Stacey Abrams was another. Um, just a group of really promising young people who I think it's safe to say represent a new generation um, and a new articulation of a version of our country. And we're going through a lot of hard stuff as a country. And so the selfish part of this question is people are looking for the articulation of where we go from here and how we become a better country and why we should believe again. And so rather than asking you about your future, I'm going to ask you about our future you are now fast-forwarding ahead from that, from that New Hampshire speech that you gave where you killed it. It's now a few years later. Um, tell us your vision of, and your view of this country and what the opportunity is ahead and what, what our priorities need to be. Um, well, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like I'm, I, I used to, when I would get a question like that, I felt like it was my job to just summon all the optimism I could manage um, and I, I remain optimistic because by disposition I, I am, and also cause like, what's the alternative? Um, but I'm really worried, but I'll tell you what 
I like what thoughts I go to when I'm feeling um, uh, cynical, maybe about it, or 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 defeatist about things. I think about the conversations I have with people younger than me, because you know I'm now I'm 41 now, so I, I've reached the age where I can say things like. It's really energizing to talk to young people. No, and, no, you can't. No, <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not going to give you that. Well, it feels that way to me. Look, I'm 55 and I feel like I got a lifetime of stuff ahead of me. So um, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate I'll say that. Younger, younger. No, no, people, look, I appreciate yeah. the impact you have on younger people and you should. But I do think your generation has, has yet to have their influence felt in this country. Oh, I agree with that. And I, yeah, let me be more clear then. That's a, that's a good point. Like, I guess it wouldn't be enough for me if I, because I do feel like my generation, which I'm, I'm just barely a millennial. So the millennial generation imbues me with a lot of optimism because overall the, you know, the outlook and the priorities of the millennial generation, I think is one that is, is going to steer us in the right direction. And that's why there's such an effort to disenfranchise so many members of it by the right, right. Is to win by subtraction. Um, but what then takes me to the level of like, I think, there's a real chance we're going to be okay is then when I also, when I add to that conversations with generation Z and I see how much more clearly they clearly, even more clearly, even than, than millennials that they look at the situation and go, I, we question all of these ridiculous assumptions that you people are working with. You know, the, the idea that nothing can be done about climate, the idea that we're just going to accept that this is the way democracy uh, fails to work in this country. Like, they are so dissatisfied, but not dissatisfied to a point of inaction or throwing up their hands. So I don't have a way to articulate, here's how it's going to be fixed by these combined generations, or here's how it's going to be salvaged, because I don't know that it will be. But I know that if and when it is, it's going to be through that energy, that that unwillingness to accept this situation and unwillingness to accept this trajectory, which is so deeply ingrained in this, in these two generations across the geography of the country. And that, that makes me feel really good. And if I had a magic wand, which I don't, what I would do to get us there much faster is I would institute some form of mandatory, not military, if people don't want to do military, some form of short mandatory service in this country. And not for the reasons that most people typically bring it up. They usually bring it up because they feel like everybody should have skin in the game and everybody should. No, that's not why it is important to me. It's important to me because I feel like one of the hardest questions to answer these days is what does it mean to be an American? Because to me, it means like, what can we all agree on right now? It's like everybody has a strong view one way or the other on Taylor Swift and one in three people watch the Super Bowl. But we are not where we were where we all had something to draw on as a shared experience. And when you don't have shared experience, it is very difficult for democracy to function because for democracy to work, you have to feel some sort of connection with people who have very little in common with you. And we are in a time technologically and electorally where all of the incentives are driving us apart. And we tend to think of of our politics as mirroring that, mirroring our societal change, mirroring our cultural change, mirroring the technology. We think that Fox and MSNBC is what's pushing our politics apart, but that's not true. What's happening is we have designed a system where nobody has to know anybody else, where through gerrymandering, through voter suppression, through the way we do elections, we've created separate constituencies and our media and our conversation is following where the customer is. You know, if if everybody started a conversation easily with an icebreaker that wasn't, hey, here's how the royals are doing, but was instead like, uh, hey, uh, what'd you do for your service? That would change the fabric of this country. And I can I know that for a fact because I've never met a veteran that was a stranger to me. Because when you know someone's a veteran, you know, it's, where'd you serve? What unit were you with? And boom, we have something in common. We can disagree on everything. But that person and I, we will see each other's common humanity. You know, of all the things you could have said, Jason, what's appealing to me about what you said here is primarily that it's not a, it's not a quick fix formula. It's not a policy. It's not a slogan. Um, it is a, it's a reinvestment. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's not the cure. Um, 
But it's almost that without that foundational understanding and empathy, uh, we don't have a lot to build on. It just becomes harder to build the other stuff. Yeah, democracy doesn't work when winning is zero sum. And when, when, you know, look, when the voter suppression movement started, it was large corporate donors wanting to increase their power by reducing the vote share of people who weren't going to vote their way. And the average voter on the right had no interest in it. But that's changed because the way our culture has changed is whatever hurts the other side helps me. And it's going to be really hard for us to get where we need to go if we see the other side as the other side, the bad guys, right? And the thing is, there's context for this. We all have it. Like, my neighbor has a Let's let's Go Brandon shirt, okay? But our kids play together. And he and I can watch Chiefs games in his garage in the winter and get along. Fine. Now, like, if politics comes up, it's going to be very difficult for our relationship. And it's happened slightly at times before. Well, he's got to know your politics. Yeah, yeah he does. Um and there are people on my side of the aisle who see, oh, you compromise. You, you, No, no, no. No, I live in Kansas City. And if I want to save souls, which is what I want to do, I want to bring people around in my point of view, well, then I'm going to have to be near them. And, on, and the other side of that is, if we want people to see the humanity of us, if we want white people in the suburbs who don't feel affected by the issue to care about the fact that there are, that there are black people uh, in the suburbs and in the urban core, who there, are, there is a political party targeting their voting rights, then they've got to have relationships with those people, yeah, you know, and for them to care about it. And so, that's the direction I see it it going. And and for me, like, I do think that part of that is you don't have to be to kind of to go to where you started this a little. You don't have to be running for office to achieve those sorts of things. There's lots of ways to be in public service. It's why I do the work I do at Veterans Community Project. I'm using this right now to shove in this piece of information about the book, which is that all of my royalties are going to combat veteran suicide and veteran homelessness through uh, Veterans Community Project. But I, I say that to mention that point, but also to say getting involved in your community and things, whether they be political or not, all of that exposes us to people who don't think and don't see the world exactly the way we do. And I do feel that my generation and the generation following mine has a great desire and eagerness to do that. And that does make me feel at least long-lasting tinges of optimism. Well, look, I'll go one further. As a Gen Xer, I learn a lot from your generation and the generation that follows. And I still think I'm capable of changing and learning and contributing based on what you guys do. I think you've demonstrated that, Andy. <laughs> and so I don't know that we get much well, credit for that, but you know, I think you're doing a lot. Well, you give me you've given me, as I've mentioned earlier, on one that one example. But I would just say more probably, you've given me a lot more courage. And I think you, your example gives people, and you'd give people courage, whether it's to take the risk to deal with their thing, whatever their thing is, whether it is to start that conversation whether it's to make a contribution another way. Um, your example so far in your 41 years, in your 41 years has been to give people, I think, an example of what can change when you take those steps and take those very difficult steps. I mean, I think the courage is actually taking that step, that that picking up the phone you did and that, 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 that time with, and, and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Once you take that step, the the, the other steps become marginally oh, easier. There's nothing after but that. But that courage, yeah, that courage to take to do that first thing, you have given a life example to people, and you're only 41, man. So I'm I'm really looking forward to continuing to track with you. Well, thanks, man. Likewise, I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for being in the bubble. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. You want to hear what's coming up in July? Do you want the kind of calendar sneak preview? Well, of course, we're going to cover COVID and whatever's happening in COVID. And Bill Hannage is going to come on because as BA5 comes here, things change, as we talked about a little bit earlier. And we want to know what's happening to our immunity in particular. Scott Kirby, I need your help on this one. Scott Kirby, he's the CEO of United Airlines. I want to know every email question you ever wanted to send to the CEO of an airline 
about your travel experience, how bad it is, how good it is, how expensive it is, how much you love the peanuts, how much you hate the peanuts, how much you didn't like the person sitting next to you. Um, I hope it wasn't me. But just send me your questions at in the bubble at lemonadamedia.com and I will put them to Scott Kirby. Then a great slew of things coming up. We're going to do a show on the secret kind of deadliness of fentanyl and the combination of fentanyl and Snapchat. Oh boy, this is a big one. Chris Murphy is going to come on the show at some point soon to talk about the heroic work he has done to get the gun bill passed. We're going to talk about other issues that are important to us all, um, including what's happening to food, not just here in the U.S., but the cost and availability of food in Africa. Is this crisis that people are talking about real? Is it not? So lots going to happen in the course of July. The team at In the Bubble are going to make sure that you get a chance to hear about it. And we're going to cover it great. And I hope you tune in and listen and enjoy. We will talk to you on Friday with a great Friday conversation. Thank you for listening to In the Bubble. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Catherine Barnes, Jackie Harris, and Cal Sheely produce our show, and they're great. Our mix is by Noah Smith and James Barber, and they're great too. Steve Nelson is the Vice President of Weekly Content, and he's okay too. And of course, the ultimate bosses, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax, the executive produced the show, and we love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Millad and Oliver Hill with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media, where you can also get a transcript of the show, and you can find me at Acelabit on Twitter. If you like what you heard today, why don't you tell your friends to listen as well? and get them to write a review. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.